So today I'm excited to talk to Dr. Sarah Rim Kaufman and Dr. Crystal Thomas. Sarah Rim Kaufman is the Commonwealth Professor of Education at the University of Virginia and an American Psychological Association Fellow with Division 15 Educational Psychology. She has been studying teachers and schools for the past 25 years with the goal of examining the evidence, or sometimes lack of evidence, behind widely used practices. One priority in her work is to create easy-to-read materials for busy teachers. Her new book, SEL from the Start, is a book for elementary school teachers eager to improve their ability to teach social and emotional skills. Crystal Thomas is an education researcher at SRI International. She brings a developmental psychology and equity lens to research, evaluation, and capacity building. Crystal's projects span issues of teacher quality and practices, students' academic and social identities, and patterns of contextual inequality in the classroom. Before joining SRI, Crystal was an Institute of Education Sciences postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning at the University of Virginia, where she was advised by her co-author, Sarah Rim Kaufman. She holds a PhD and a master's in developmental psychology from Virginia Commonwealth University. Lastly, Crystal also earned a bachelor's in psychology from Virginia State University. Today, we'll be discussing Sarah and Crystal's 2021 practice brief for educators entitled How White Middle-Class Teachers Can Apply Psychology to Teach Students Who Are Different From Them, which was developed for Division 15 of the American Psychological Association. So Crystal and Sarah, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. So can we start? Can you just give us a, a sense of the kinds of issues that your brief addresses? So the uh, brief really addresses the reality that Four out of five teachers in the U.S. are white teachers, and about 51% of students in the U.S. are students of color. And we know that about one in five students live in poverty, and most teachers are middle class. So teachers need to learn how to teach across difference. And this is something that can be learned. It's a skill that can be developed, and I think we need to really support teachers in their efforts to do something that may be challenging to them. So we focus on implicit bias as a way to do so. That's great. So uh, I think this this brief is going to be really helpful for teachers. It might be helpful for us just to get on the same page if you could tell us a little bit about how you define and think about implicit bias. Yeah, so when we are thinking of implicit bias, we define it in terms of one's attitudes or stereotypes towards other groups that might necessarily be different from an individual, but we define it within the understanding that this is without a conscious awareness of these beliefs. And this is something that everyone has in, in some capacity. But the degree to which that we become aware of our implicit biases can just be so impactful in terms of how we interact with each other and more specifically with students. And again, it's something we carry in our daily life. And so that's how we define uh, implicit bias. That's really helpful. And something that was in the brief that I thought was also really helpful was this idea that people's responses to implicit bias or responses to the recognition that they have an implicit bias can sometimes not be so helpful. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how people might respond and how they could respond maybe in a more helpful or positive way? Yeah, well, I think some different ways that one might respond is perhaps feelings of shame, also, I've seen instances where some folks might feel a sense of embarrassment or like a need to explain why they have that bias. And what we were hoping for in our brief is saying like you can acknowledge that you feel like a sense of discomfort and 
by moving beyond that discomfort, trying to find a way to then address the bias to then kind of counteract how one responds moving forward. I'll just add that I see this as a chance to reframe the experience. So when people have that horrible feeling that comes with having had a racist thought, they can reflect and say, well, it's because I'm bombarded with images that are racist. And the fact that I'm noticing this isn't something bad about me, but it's actually an opportunity to create change and to become a better person and to work towards addressing my implicit biases. I appreciate you including that in the brief, right? Because I think normalizing that and then helping people maybe decenter their sense of self and kind of focus less on trying to make explanations or feel bad and move towards trying to do something about it is a really positive direction to head. So I'm glad that's in the brief. And I think that's really helpful. And you talked about in the brief how implicit bias can affect the kinds of expectations that teachers have of students. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we know that implicit bias really matters for issues of disproportionate discipline, where Black children get more discipline than white children. And there are some really interesting studies. There's one in particular where preschool teachers are asked to watch a few kids on a video and they're asked, okay, you know, there's likely to be a behavioral disturbance that's about to occur. And the teachers are most likely to watch the black boy as opposed to the white boy or the white girl or the black girl. And so these kinds of things really suggest that there's an expectation in teachers' minds that really comes from the society we live in and some of the experiences that they've had. And then these expectations become entrenched. And it's really not fair. It ends up meaning that teachers are really, by accident, expecting much less from children when they, in fact, can do more. That really illustrates it well, right? It really illustrates why we need to pay attention to this issue. And as you wrote, people can feel about it as they feel about it. But what's most important is start trying to reflect and make some change. And so you had some suggestions. You had four suggestions to improve teacher practices um, and how they can work with students who are different than them. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to briefly talk about each of them, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first one was about, as we've been discussing, kind of teachers becoming self-aware and unlearning prejudicial habits. And I guess I'm interested in hearing more about ways in which teachers can recognize when something like this might be happening and then what they can do to make some positive steps towards addressing that bias. So the idea, this is from a paper by Patricia Devine and colleagues from 2012. And the idea here is that we are constantly living in a culture that teaches us racist ideas and thoughts. And we tend to be unaware of these biases, which is why we call them implicit biases. What's interesting is Patricia Devine and her colleagues actually refer to them as unintentional biases. And what they did is they studied a group of people where they had an intervention where when people experienced or we became aware of some of their biases, they were supposed to follow a three-part process. They're supposed to detect the bias. So you notice the stereotype response when it occurs, then reflect on the bias. So uncover, acknowledge, and understand that your own history, your own background, and try to explain to yourself, why did I have that thought? And ask yourself that important question. Then the third thing is to reject. And what you do is you consciously replace that stereotype 
with a new non-stereotypical way of thinking about a person in that same category. And that can actually help counteract the bias in the future. So as it turned out, that study showed that that exercise was very useful in decreasing unintentional or implicit bias. And uh, that study really resonated with me because I thought it's like a very proactive thing to do. And it's even something that people can talk about. Teachers can talk about doing this with others and they can hold each other accountable. Like, you know, I had a moment today where I realized something, I did something, I addressed it. I'm working on this problem. I'm developing a new set of skills. That scheme, detect, reflect, reject, makes a lot of sense to me. It kind of sounds like knowledge uh, reconstruction or knowledge reorganization, kind of a refutation type approach. But I, I like that it's active and that it's directly targeting the thoughts as opposed to maybe getting stuck in all the feelings that we talked about. So that, that sounds like a great suggestion for teachers. Next, you wrote that teachers should learn about their students and their perspectives, including a focus on their strengths and interests. How do you think teachers can do this? And what good things happen when teachers do this? So I'll take this one also. This one follows from decades of research on the importance of teacher-student relationships. And we know that For all children, when teachers create a responsive relationship with them, when they're very attuned to individual students, it can be very, very healthy for those students. And students are highly aware of whether their teachers are responsive and respectful of them. And they know when teachers are faking respect. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's really important to think about that and then also think about it in relation to children's racial and ethnic identity. So you want to draw upon children's skills and knowledge that stem from their culturally specific experiences. So for example, a teacher can encourage students to share their home language, their music, cooking strategy, or craft, or things that they do at home in a way that really becomes part of the fabric of the classroom. Depending on the grade level, that can really take different forms. But just inviting those practices and and teachers asking open-ended questions, demonstrating their curiosity and interest in children will help the teachers learn about their students so that they can create an environment that feels safe to those students and then also leverage those strengths and interests in interesting ways. The other thing is that teachers can design student assignments that are much more meaningful to students by helping them make connection between those assignments and aspects of their home culture and the Mm -hmm. curriculum. And then those assignments, teachers can use that information to understand students better and be more attuned to their interests and their motivations. And then I think really reminding teachers to use everything they know about a child to develop a trusting and respectful relationship. We know that these positive teacher-student relationships have been demonstrated to be incredibly important in elementary school, as well as middle school and high school. So teachers being able to prioritize those relationships ends up being really, really important in being able to teach across difference. So it strikes me that this sounds a lot like funds of knowledge work or culturally relevant or culturally sustaining pedagogies. Are there connections there? Yeah. Initially in the brief, we use cultural funds of knowledge, but we wanted to make sure that we use language that was accessible for folks mm-hmm. and really broke down like what that looks like and the meaning of cultural funds of, of knowledge. So yes, we did. Originally, we pulled from there, but we wanted to make sure that the language you used was, was accessible. 
And that makes a lot of sense. It's nice to see those connections and it's nice to, um, I think people listening to this might want to continue this work and research it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's great to be able to connect that. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. The next recommendation you have was about individuating to counteract stereotypes. And I think it might be helpful to talk about what individuating is and how it helps to counteract those stereotypes. Yeah. So it can be tricky because part of individuating is counteracting stereotypes by you know, getting to know a student more in depth outside of just one's knowledge and understanding about one's, you know, racial, cultural, or linguistic background. Part of what Sarah shared in terms of learning about students goes hand in hand with individuating because what we don't want to do is, you know, be on the one end of being colorblind and mm-hmm. ignoring students' background, but you also don't want to be on the other extreme end where you're now stereotyping the student because of their background. So individuating mm-hmm. is a delicate dance of both acknowledging and understanding students, you know, cultural and linguistic background, but then also understanding that they're, you know, they're not a monolith of who they come from, but um, understanding the uniqueness that they bring to the classroom. And I really like how you articulated that in terms of that balance, right, between, mm-hmm. you know, treating students as individuals, but also recognizing that they exist in a social, cultural, historical context. Yeah. And, you know, that might have some effects upon them or you mm-hmm. or your interaction with them. What are some ways in which teachers can maybe combine these two suggestions that we just were talking about that, you know, creating a relationship with students and also recognizing them as individuals that exist in this context? How can teachers kind of leverage those two suggestions together? Yeah, so I think one way of doing that is, you know, we want to make sure that teachers, one, understand their biases about student backgrounds. So for example, mm-hmm. if a teacher thinks that students with a particular background might be good at a particular subject, checking and recognizing that that's not true for all individuals of that background and making sure that every student has a clear understanding of the materials and keeping the same level of rigor and expectations and not making assumptions of those students. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more importantly, by integrating one's understanding of the student's background, by inviting them to include aspects of themselves where it's part of their like home life or interests, that can then be brought into the classroom. So making those specific examples without making assumptions of the background, but the specific examples that the teachers learned over time about the student to bring into the classroom and make it relatable, that can be a really important point of leverage. Like I said, I think it's important to marry together learning about the student's background and then applying that to different either teaching practices or or projects when relating to students. And that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Like Sarah, as you said, students can tell when teachers are faking it. And so if teachers are doing kind of surface level relationship building and then trying Mm -hmm. to incorporate those surface level ideas into instruction, students will probably figure that out. But Crystal, as you said, if teachers take the time to really get to know their students as individuals and within their context, they probably would have a lot of great information that they can use to individuate instruction and also Mm -hmm. make instruction more personally relevant. It feels like all these suggestions fit together really nicely. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about teachers and what teachers can do and the ways in which teachers interact with students. You also have a suggestion about the school climate and culture. So what do we need to think about for school climate and culture when teachers are working with students who are different than that? Yeah, I think the biggest part about this piece is, you know, families are also a part of the school culture as well. And these implicit bias practices and suggestions aren't just for students, but also for how teachers and administrators interact with families and 
making sure that their voices are not only at the table, but activating those voices so that they can be included in the school culture and taking into account the strengths that these families bring. And then that also furthers teachers and administrators' understanding of students' background and home culture and and how that plays into the classroom. And so this piece was really important to me because I think that we have to kind of go beyond just the teachers and students and also then thinking of how to engage not only families, but also the community as well. Because, you know, if we have support from families and the community that really provides students the importance of, you know, the education that they're getting and the value that they bring to learning in the classroom. Yeah, and it strikes me that getting to know parents and families and the community will help the teacher establish that relationship. And Mm -hmm. as you said, you know, it can really help the teacher better connect with the student. And I thought I also heard you say and read that there's an advocacy piece for teachers as well in terms of power and voice. Mm -hmm. Um, So what can teachers do to make sure that people who might not have had the opportunity to voice or share their thoughts, how can teachers help those people make sure that their voice is heard? Yeah, so one of the examples in the brief is, is it just the parents of like the AP students that are attending and giving suggestions, thinking of students from other backgrounds, parents of other backgrounds, and ways in which that we can engage them either if it's just, you know, sending a note or calling the parent and saying, hey, we have like an upcoming meeting to discuss these initiatives, or it's just important for teachers to kind of just scan like, who is here, who is present, and who is shaping the school or classroom environment, and how can we make sure that students that, you know, might be underserved or not, you know, equitably represented can have their voices heard in the same way. Yeah, I really like that. So it does juxtapose really nicely with, you know, in terms of implicit bias, teachers should be Mm -hmm. detecting, reflecting, and rejecting, but they also need to be kind of proactive and looking at the environment and detecting and reflecting when maybe there aren't certain voices in the room that need to be there and then finding ways to bring those voices in and lift them up. So that sounds like a really positive kind of proactive way that teachers can address issues like this. Absolutely. So this practice brief is really helpful and I'm, I'm so glad it's out there. Can I ask, you know, what, what inspired you to write the brief? What got you interested in producing a practice brief on this topic? It's the switch that flipped in my mind about how we deal with racist thoughts Mm. and that, Too often, when we experience racist thoughts, we just feel terrible. And I was just noticing this in people I've met with, conversations I've had. And I was, it it came to me that we need to kind of be liberated from that burden in order to create change. And that we're letting certain emotions get in the way of meeting kids' needs. And we can't tolerate that anymore. And then it was really, you know, the demographic that 80% of the teachers in this country are white. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion about pulling in more teachers of color, but that's not going to be the quick fix. And that's not a realistic, I mean, that's one route, but we also really need to work with white teachers and say, be aware of your whiteness, understand it, and understand how to reach kids from many different backgrounds and environments and races and ethnicities than your own. And so I think it was really about that, that it just made it like compelling case. Like we got to just start talking about it in really plain terms and in ways that 
will invite anyone to want to participate in this effort to improve themselves. And that's wonderful. And, you know, Crystal, you talked about how the practice brief needs to be written in a way that is really accessible. And it, I think yeah. it is. I think it is very accessible. But it's wonderful how there's so much rigorous scholarship and thinking that underlie it. And it really feels like it's coming from a really informed place, which I think it makes it even more straightforward for teachers, right? When it comes from that really informed place, I think it's easier to communicate. Can you tell me how your thoughts contained in the practice brief might have evolved since you wrote it? Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind is, you know, I've had a chance to kind of reflect more on the brief. And initially, we wrote it thinking of centering this around students and the first few facts that we give in terms of like, what does the research say, you know, speaks to what this looks like when implicit bias kind of like takes over the classroom and what that looks like for student outcomes and student discipline. But I've had a chance to think more and I was sharing with Sarah that this can be applied the same way among colleagues. And I was saying to Sarah that, you know, we've come across recent articles that speak of teachers of color, you know, leaving the profession and what's related to some of this issues of retention for teachers of color, particularly Black women. And one article that I saw cited things like microaggressions. And I think that what we speak to in the brief could easily be applied not only to teachers and students, but also among colleagues and just creating, you know, a warm environment that for all can feel like they have a sense of belonging and, and purpose in the school environment. So that, that's a really important and powerful point, right? So these ideas, if I'm understanding you correctly, these ideas also apply to teachers working with teachers and teachers working with administrators and administrators mm-hmm. working with teachers and that kind of thing. So it sounds like it's it has applicability beyond just the teacher-student relationship. Yeah. And I'll add to that in that this work by Tony Breich and Mark Schneider describes this concept of relational trust. And In the introducing of that concept, it's the idea that every interaction that adults have with other adults at school are opportunities to either demonstrate that there's trust present Mm. or that there is not trust present. Mm. And I think about in environments where you have teachers of color working alongside white teachers, there's another dimension of relational trust in that it's not just the the regular components of relational trust, but also something about racial and ethnic identity that needs to be acknowledged. And also do the teachers of color feel safe and secure and trusted? And do they feel like they're a part of the community at their school? So I think that's like, there's like another layer there that we need to be thinking about with adults in schools. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, Crystal, you mentioned microaggressions and microaggressions can happen between teachers. They can happen between administrators and teachers. And again, I think this practice brief has some nice advice about helping anyone kind of recognize that something happened. You know, there was some implicit bias here. There was something happened that I wish didn't happen. And then helping those people move, you know, kind of move past just the emotion and get to action and how they can address that. So I like Crystal, how you're um, extending the practice brief beyond just the teacher-student relationship. And Sarah, as you said, that's really important to do. Mm-hmm. So, so what are some things that teachers might struggle with or that teachers face that might make them unintentionally more likely to engage in acts of implicit bias? One challenge we're facing always with teachers is how busy they are and how mm-hmm. many demands there are on their time. 
And I am continually impressed with how much stress and strain teachers can endure and have tremendous respect for them. And one thing that I realize about stereotypes is that stereotypes are a type of categorizing and it's efficient. So if you want to be efficient, then you might use stereotypes to be efficient. Once we realize that, then we realize, okay, to not let our biases play out in classrooms, we're going to have to take a moment here or there and slow down and stop and think. And so helping teachers realize that like the efficiency can be at odds with the ability to meet the individual needs of kids and to be able to teach across difference seems like a really important idea. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So Crystal, I'm interested in what you're working on now and you know, what are some things that are exciting to you as you continue your work? Yeah, I think one current project that comes to mind that's I guess in some ways related to the work from the brief is I've been working on an evaluation of open education resource programs and the evaluation is interested in how these OER programs are culturally responsive and sustaining in their practices and Mm. to what degree do the materials reflect that. There's five programs that will be kind of like representative of our understanding of OER programs and We'll have a chance to do interviews with the developers and understanding their design and their thoughts around the implementation of the program, as well as the impact of it. And then also interviewing teachers and their use of the materials and what they're learning from those practices. And hopefully students, too, to kind of see, okay, so we're developing all of this to be culturally responsive. And are the kids also then feeling like they're getting those culturally responsive practices and materials. So that's a project that I'm not only excited about, but just look forward to seeing what comes of that. Because I'm now beginning to learn more about open education resources and programs. So I'm excited to see what comes out of it. That's great. I mean, that sounds like critical work because I know open education resources are becoming more and more prominent as well they should. Mm-hmm. And, and they're a really yeah. important resource, but you're asking a critical question about them, right? Like, are they are they engaging in culturally sustaining pedagogies? Are they implementing those ideas in ways that will benefit all students? Yeah. So I'm excited to, to hear what your evaluation produces. I'm sure open education resources, people that create open education resources will value it as well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what about you? What are you working on that gets you really excited? So right now in my lab, we have a few different research projects where we're studying different types of programs intended to develop social and emotional and character skills in youth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have a project studying the ruler program. Crystal worked on that with us. And we have another project studying the Valor Collegiate schools and the compass program and then a third project is a study on expeditionary learning actually el education they used to be called expeditionary learning and we're looking to see the way that those practices in el education cultivate respect and empathy in classrooms so i have been immersed in sixth graders views about respect And hearing what they say about how teachers teach respect in classrooms. And it's been very exciting and interesting. I bet. That sounds fascinating. So, again, important work that I'll be excited to read about. You've already done quite a bit of work, both of you, in social-emotional learning, which has been really important work. I'm glad to hear that you're expanding, extending, and, and doing additional things. So, thank you for your efforts in those areas. Thank you. 
So this seems like a good place to, to wrap it up for today. So I encourage our listeners to check out your 2021 practice brief entitled How White Middle-Class Teachers Can Apply Psychology to Teach Students Who Are Different from Them. And that can be found online at the American Psychological Association Division 15 website. Uh, but Sarah and Crystal, thank you again so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. Thank you, Jeff. This is terrific.